namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami We're continuing with chapter two, the wheel of birth and death, and this section is called the user's manual, the four noble truths. The Buddha outlines the spiritual malaise, that means the illness, suffering, dukkha, as the first noble truth. He says that this dukkha is to be recognized, to be apprehended, to be understood. But it's also um, uh, notable that the the Four Noble Truths is laid out like a medical diagnosis. So you have first of all the symptom, dukkha, that's um, how the disease appears. And then second is the the cause, the the origin of the disease. Then the third noble truth is the prognosis, is it curable, uh, which is fortunately yes. And then the fourth is the treatment. And so um, people have written um, uh, or theorized uh, somewhat, uh, particularly um, uh, Kalupahana, who is a, um, a Buddhist uh, scholar and writer, that uh, the, uh, the, the, there was this format in the Indian medical world at the, uh, the time, and the Buddha took that format and uh, applied that to his spiritual understanding. Others have said, no, 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 no. The Buddha came up with this, and then the medical people followed along afterwards. And so there's been scholarly debate, as they say, about which came first. Um, but anyway, it's uh, it's uh, helpfully put into that form. So symptom, cause, prognosis, and treatment. So it starts off with with dukkha. That's the symptom of the spiritual disease of uh, that. Uh, the the, um, the fact that we are less than totally happy all of the time, and then uh, for uh, as we uh, chant in the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta, uh, the Buddha's first discourse, then we're, when we're doing the the whole Udapadi section, Chakum Udapadi, Nyanam Udapadi, and so on, um, then with each of the uh, the f- uh, the four truths. There is a way in which those uh, those truths are to be worked with that is spelled out. So um, dukkha, uh, the the, the um, task involved uh, with with that uh, that first noble truth is parinyayanti. It is to be recognized or to be apprehended, to be understood, or to be uh, ac- uh, to be accepted. Parinyayanti, or to be studied, really, also. The second noble truth, again, this is a very, very brief summary because there's lots about four noble truths in many other books, and particularly Lumpur Sumedho's wonderful little book. The second noble truth, the cause of that spiritual illness, is outlined as self-centered craving or desire, tanha. The Buddha encourages us to work with this second noble truth by abandoning that cause. It is to be let go of, pahatabhanti. That's the party for that. The third noble truth is the prognosis that this malaise of dukkha can be cured, so that it's um, that's the possibility. Yes, it, it uh, there can be an ending of that uh, that dukkha, dukkha nirodha. There's the possibility to be free of dukkha, and that cure, the freedom from dukkha, is to be realized, sachikata bhanti. And the fourth noble truth is the treatment. The noble eightfold path is the medicine that will bring about the cure from the malaise of dukkha. The Buddha's advice is, is that this Eightfold Path should be developed, bhaveta bhanti. In a sense, the teaching of dependent origination spells out in fine detail how to get from truth number two to truth number three, and from the cause of suffering to the end of suffering. I often compare the teachings to a car's manual. The manual may be a hundred pages, but you can also have a one-page summary in the front that tells you what you need to know to get your car to start and to drive it. That one-page summary is the Four Noble Truths, 
the other 99 pages in the manual of the teachings on dependent origination. They are like the detailed instruction in the car's manual about how to control the heater, how to adjust the air conditioning, or the settings on the lights and the indicators and the automatic doors. It explains all the fine detail of the system so that the driver will know how to adjust everything in order to make full and effective use of the vehicle and also look after maintenance and so on and so forth. So it's... Um, so the, the sequence that you have in the Four Noble Truths, uh, you've got you know, symptom, cause, prognosis, uh, treatment, in terms of a, a, a sort of a, a time sequence, uh, th and this is something that uh, one of the great uh, Thai forest ajans has uh, pointed out and made much of, Lumpur Duan, in terms of a time sequence, the time sequence really goes two, one, four, three. So cause of dukkha, the experience of dukkha, the treatment for the, um, uh, the, the, for the condition, and then the result of that treatment being applied. And, uh, and so Lung Dun had his own way of expressing the, the Four Noble Truths in that order, um, and saying, you know, the cause of suffering is the mind getting lost in its, uh, in its, uh, the, the uh, say so the cause of suffering is the, the capacity of the mind to get lost in its moods. And then the experience of dukkha is fully being lost in a in a mood, uh, being born into a particular mood. And then the uh, the mind, uh, when the mind knows the mind, when the, the mind knows itself, then that is the way that leads to the end of suffering. And when there's the actuality of the mind being aware uh, of itself, then that brings about that ending of suffering. So he, in his writings, in a number of places, then he talks about this. Um, uh, to reconfiguring and re reframing or restating of the Four Noble Truths. And Lumpur Sumato was very, very fond of this, and I, I believe at his Kuti, uh, I don't know if he's got the copy here, but uh, at his Kuti in, in Ratanawan Monastery in Thailand, he had the, this written out in Thai script, sort of, I think, carved onto a, sort of a wooden tablet in, in uh, you know, Lumpur Dun's very uh, succinct expression of, of the Four Noble Truths in that 2143. Uh, modality. So, any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. So, um, in terms of you know that basically that literal um, summary, uh, yeah, they deal with these times when uninvited person that they're they're not suffering. You know, their mind's not their mind's aware of itself. Mm -hmm. You know, but um, then obviously then there's the uh, total destruction of the taints, which is kind of when mindfulness is unremitting when there's a, an, a, an ongoing awareness of you know, this is a feeling, this is a thought, this is a sound, this is a memory, this is a, a this is a mood, this is a, uh, and that the, the mind is not there's enough mindfulness to appreciate the the, the field of, of experience and perception, and know that none of it is a person that belongs to a person, that uh, that's uh, there's a. Uh, uh, that appreciation and that framing of, of the flow of experience and perception and feeling uh, in a in a non-personal way it's still there and it's over and over again you know, and you can see that the stories of accounts of the enlightened beings having conversations with each other walking around getting ill and, and doing things and making choices there's still you know, the Buddha and the other enlightened beings are certainly you know, doing things and engaging so the sense world is still functioning very Actively and ordinarily, it's not that you see things in a particular way, or you know, things in a, in a in a special way. But it's there's no um, uh, self-creating around that field of, of perception. And then, on account of that, then there is uh, because of that, that that continuous presence of mindfulness and full awareness. Then. Uh, there's a sensitivity to the time, the place, the situation, you know, the limitations that you have, or the capacities that you have, uh, of this being you know, in relationship to the environment, 
they are in. So that's what makes a difference, like the mind knowing the mind. And that's a way of talking about having uh, sati, having mindfulness. Uh, and um, whether it's a, a wholesome thought, an unwholesome thought, or a neutral thought, whether it's an a, 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 a agitated emotion or a peaceful emotion, whether it's a busy state of mind or a focused state of mind, then it's in knowing all of those as they are. Okay, in the in the, the teaching on the four foundations of mindfulness, the, the third one, Chitanupasana, um, it's I, I think it's very significant that the, the when the Buddha is talking about establishing mindfulness around moods, he doesn't really distinguish about whether wholesome or unwholesome or comfortable or uncomfortable. He, knowing the agitated mind is agitated, knowing the unagitated mind is unagitated. Knowing the mind with anger is the mind with anger. Knowing the mind free of anger is free of anger. It's completely flat. It's like it's like there's no value judgment about that in that in that instance whether there's a, a, an agitated feeling or a peaceful feeling or a concentrated or scattered. And just knowing oh, this at, the, at this moment the mind is scattered. At this moment the mind is focused. At this moment the mind is expanded. At the moment the mind is contracted. So that. Uh, um, and at the end of the section, it says the establishing of mindfulness to the extent of knowing there is this. Yeah, that is the way that mindfulness is, is fully established. So the, the challenge, you know, so maybe when we're sitting still in the temple and we hear a sound and the mind, uh, and everything is very, very <laughs> still and quiet and, and uh, steady. And, oh, here is my mind calling that sound bad or like, or the, the mind saying you know, I don't want to hear that and it's and it's very clear that it's just that the mind that the thinking mind having a, a reaction to a particular sense perception and there's no identification or attachment but then <laughs> when you're out and about and for being a person then it's much more easy to be drawn into that so the the effort is really establishing that quality of, of mindfulness and full awareness that uh, uh, of what Lumposamedo would call in- intuitive awareness, uh, the Sati Sampajanya, and sustaining that as, as fully as possible through a day. Yes? I suppose there is a speculative question at this point being that somehow that, that awareness is accompanied by the I don't know what to say, it's feeling of sort of brightness, but you are aware of things, but at the same time not where am I with this is because there is in the diagnostic manual there's such a <laughs> disorder <laughs> called um, dissociative disorder, you know, several several um, dissociative disorders. Mm-hmm. One of them is called depersonalizations mm-hmm. and how people describe it is that they sort of Everything they they feel removed from everything. They are aware of everything, but it all feels weird, not real, but not in the. I don't think there's a kind of depersonalization um, as to describe anatta <laughs> or deep realization of anatta. So, um, yeah, you know that the, the sort of quality of awareness comes with. I don't know engagement. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's there's quite a number of quote unquote meditation diseases or, or, or that uh, difficulties that arise um, either from meditation or just uh, in terms of how the mind is functioning. Uh, sanya vipalasa literally means the incorrect holding of perception, and so. Um, or, or the uh, vipassana upakilesa, the defilements of insight. So sometimes that their you know, effort can be made, and there, there can be that kind of uh, letting go or distancing. But if it's if it's held in an unskillful way, or if there's still um, subtle attachments to to self view in the background, or uh, there's or, or subtle kinds of rejection. Then that can have its effect, and you get these dissociated states where people are just sort of walking out in the middle of the, of the street, and or it's a it's a real spacing out, or the mind interprets it. Oh, I'm the only real human being in the world. Everyone else is just phenomena. Yeah, 
And so those are, are all imbalances or uh, to do with the wrong, uh, uh, the sort of mistaken holding of, of perception and experience. And so it's so one of the reasons why living in a sangha and having in a community and having, um, uh, people, sort of ex- experienced people around or having resources that you can check in with. So if the mind starts to go in those directions, then you can think, well, this is what I'm experiencing. You know, is this in balance or out of balance? And, um, so it's one of the very helpful aspects of living in community as you, you've got to, or people looking at you saying, are you all right? I'm fine, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> really, really fine. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, let's have a cup of tea. You know? <laughs> and whereas, you know, if, you can't, if you're on your own, uh, oftentimes it's people who are sort of practicing by themselves or living in, in isolation, they can get further out into those dissociated or, or you know, uns, uns, you know, lost in those, uh, those states because they haven't got a, a mirror or they haven't got a someone close up who can tell them you sit down let's have a cup of tea you know? um, but no it, it's uh, I mean I had that uh, that kind of experience as a teenager of a, of a sort of falling away of the sense of self and it was very uh, unsettling and un- extremely unpleasant I didn't because I didn't have a context what was happening I was looking in the mirror and I wasn't hallucinating I was it was this face well with Hair and a beard, but uh, I wasn't hallucinating. But that face in the mirror had absolutely nothing to do with this quality that was looking in the mirror. Like there was no connection. So that was extremely weird and very unsettling. And uh, I think I did take refuge in putting the kettle on. That's a very, very British thing to do. It's like, okay, this is extremely weird. I don't know what to do with this. Put the, you know, have a cup of tea. You know? And uh, so for about a month or six weeks, that, that uh, I was, uh, and I, I was, it was interesting because I had uh, <coughs> this strange sort of strangely certain intuition that you know you're not crazy and don't see the go, don't go to the college doctor. <laughs> you, know, you, you can handle this on your own. Um, yeah, you're not you're not crazy, but uh, this you know. And just stay with it, and and things will will shift, which they did. But it was it was very very unsettling. But then it was a couple of years later when I'm in a monastery and I've got a context of Buddhist practice and and uh, teachings on not self. Then having a very similar experience uh, on a solitary retreat is like, oh right, well this is great because I had a framework for it and that same sense of of oh well, what's you know, looking in a mirror like well what what's that got to do with anything real? That's just <laughs> this appearance, but the, the, that which is knowing the the sensory perceptions of a, of a human life and the face and so on, like how how is that knowing which is completely formless, really absolutely connected or identified with the, the form that's there in the mirror or looking at my hand? Like, <laughs> again, not hallucinating or, or dis- with distorted vision or anything. But just that sense of this is not who and what I am, you know, and that. Uh, but then the mind held it in a very, very different way. So I, uh, so that it, it was. Um, I feel that's that's one of the great benefits of having, you know, uh, the possibility of living with other fellow practitioners and, and having great teachers around, like Lumpur uh, uh, Sumato, as uh, was you know, incredibly helpful and as a uh, sort of resource of, uh, of wisdom and guidance uh, in those years for myself. So it's uh, those kind of distortions of, of perception. And it's, if you look at the, the list of qualities, like the vipassana upakilesa, the defilements of insight, there can be things like unremitting mindfulness, uh, yeah, yeah, the uh, um, abundant energy, uh, bro- uh, radiant uh, states of mind. You, you can read through it. Well, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> but it, the the way the mind is holding it often is a a uh, a kind of intoxication with those states, or that there's an uh, an identification with this. You know, I am this, and so that's a the kind of um, uh, that even though they have wholesome qualities to them, they don't lead to anything peaceful or really liberating. That they're, they're kind of 
energized um, and uh, have a, a sort of maybe a rapturous uh, sort of joyful quality or an energetic quality to them but um, they very easily lead to being uh, out of uh, out of harmony with the, the people that you're in or looking after your body or can just um, uh, acting in ways that are, are sort of confusing and, and painfully for yourself and the, and the people around you. So, to continue. When we look at the dependent origination teachings, particularly considering it as describing cycles of addiction, there is a specific... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Let's go to the next page. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Excuse me. When we look at the dependent origination teachings, particularly considering it as describing cycles of addiction, there is a specific question to investigate. Why do I keep making the same mistakes? Why do we keep repeating activities when we know they bring suffering? Why do we keep indulging in certain obsessions? When I talk about addiction, I don't just mean addiction to alcohol or cocaine or nicotine. There can be addiction to meditation. There can be addiction to your iPhone. Addiction to relationships, addiction to fame, addiction to self-criticism. It can be subtle or gross, it can be visible or invisible. When I speak about addiction, it can refer to many different dimensions of experience. Each one of us can usefully look at our lives and see the areas where we get stuck. So that, that was just a follow-up to the, the earlier comment um, and the um, that... Um, Understanding how dependent origination and these teachings, uh, these teachings work, where the, the the different dimensions of the mind gets caught up, whether it's a, a, a tangible addiction or something that's more subtle in terms of relationships or uh, or how you see your uh, yourself, or your own life, your own mind, it, it can vary. So there's an encouragement to take a look and see well what what are the what are the areas where my mind really gets caught up? What does the mind like to get born into, even if what it's born into brings pain and difficulty, uh, sometimes we can continually create trouble for ourselves just because it, it results in the feeling like there's a me who's who's having this trouble, and that and the purpose of is not conscious, is not deliberate, but often what causes the mind to keep making those same mistakes. I would say is that it can feed the sense uh, of I and me and mine, me. Uh, who, who never gets things right, or, or, or me, who's um, uh, say who's got this particular ability, or, or me, who's always being rejected by other people. That uh, you know, we even uh, uh, it's probably more common to to create to uh, habitually create painful situations than it is to create pleasant situations. I would say a bit of a sweeping statement, but. Uh, and looking at the human world, it's often that way. And uh, I'm reading it and reading how that works. It's often just the sense of self that that comes from uh, from that. Just looking for a, an argument, looking for something to complain about, just so that you'll feel about there's, there's a me here who's got a thing that is existing and a thing that's wrong. So that uh, sometimes when things are, are peaceful and easy and comfortable, the mind is just hunting for something to contend against or complain about or get upset about or, or worry about. Uh, I, I often use the example, because I, I was a, a, a very um, compulsive worrier. Uh, some, uh, an example I often give is, uh, so you're, you're carrying out some task and you're involved in some sort of activity, so tidying up a place, and you finish the, the job, everything's tidied up, you sit down and go, ah, okay. The job is done, nothing to do, and then there's a few seconds of, of the outbreath, like, ah. And then the, there's a kind of a discomfort, like, oh, ah, what, what am I doing? What's, what's going on? And you, there's a kind of scanning of the things that the, the room around you or the, the uh, other uh, responsibilities or activities, and then you suddenly remember, oh, I've got to write you know, the, all those emails I've got to answer, or that uh, that uh, that person I've got to I've got to talk to. And then, even though it's another duty or another thing, another responsibility, there's a oh, thank goodness, <laughs> there's a relief that you've got this thing to exist in relationship to, 
and they, even though it's a, an extra responsibility, there's a relief that there's a me that exists in relationship to that, whereas that undefined sense of being. And so often we create problems just to get away from that uh, experience of undefined being, I would suggest, but we'll get to more of that as we go along. In order to assist this investigation, I'll briefly describe the process of dependent origination and how it relates to addictive habits. Once again, some teachings about dependent origination speak of it as referring to a period of three lifetimes, past life, present life, and future life. Other representations refer to present moment experience. When I describe dependent origination here, I'm taking the second approach. I'm simply referring to this present moment experience that we have here and now. So, dependent origination links one to four, avicca, sankara, vijnana, namarupa. To begin with, when considering the momentary approach, it's important to talk about the fundamental nature of mind, original mind. That's one way of talking about it. To describe this, uh, one uses terms like suchness, tatata, but there are also other descriptions. Uh, this is from a Tibetan teacher, Kenpo Tsultrim Gyamso Rinpoche. So this is from his book, Progressive Stages of Meditation and Emptiness, and uh, it was translated by Shen Pen Hukum, who's a very um, experienced translator from Tibetan into English. And this is from um, the... the uh, there's five different stages in, in that book. It's a very small book. It's, it's not, uh, not a very common uh, publication. You don't see it around very much. But uh, this is the in the fifth or the most sort of refined section called Shentong. The luminous, self-aware, non-conceptual mind that is experienced in meditation, when the mind is completely free of concepts, is absolute reality and not a vijnana, uh, vijnana Pali vijnana, a partial, fragmented knowing. When the luminous, self-aware, non-conceptual mind that is the wisdom mind is realized, there is no seeing and seen aspect no realizing and realized aspect to the realization. It is none other than the non-conceptual wisdom mind itself. It's also called the non-dual wisdom mind, the clear light, prabhasara, uh, nature of mind, in Pali that's prabhasara, the dharmata and the tathagata garbha. Tathagata Garbha means the womb of the Tathagatas, which means the origin of the mind, the origin of awareness. Now when we talk about ignorance, therefore, even though it's situated at the beginning of the classical twelve links, we're not talking about it as the basic nature of reality, but rather that ignorance is something which arises from original mind, which is the mother and father of everything, as Ajahn Chah's teacher Ajahn Man liked to put it. Uh, Ignorance and all perceptions of everything arise in contrast to that basic ground. Dependent origination is thus talking about the arising of illusion out of reality. So in particular in the, the little collection of uh, Rajan Man's teachings called Mutodaya, then he, uh, he makes that point. Uh, it wasn't done from a, a recording. It was a, one of the, the Sangha members who was present for that. So the teachings would sort of took notes and put them together in this little book called Mutadaya, or The Heart Released. Uh, Ajahn Tanisro has done a translation of that. And in that, one of the, 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 um, the, the points that uh, Venerable Ajahn Man makes is that everything has a mother and father, uh, ignorance has a, a mother and father, and the, the mother and father of ignorance is original mind. And that the tie for that is jit, derm. jit is the jitta, the heart or mind. Derm means original or source. Uh, so jitterm is a and that's a, com a term that's fairly common in fairly common use amongst the the Thai forest ajans. This principle will be explored in more detail later on in the, in the book in chapter six when the quote third exit point from the cycle unquote is described. Dependent origination is thus a, a way of looking at what happens when the natural awareness of mind is clouded. When there is ignorance, the mind doesn't see clearly, ignorance being represented by a blind person or by the blind leading the blind in the first image on the rim of the bhavachaka, the, uh, the wheel of birth and death. 
When we lose our mindfulness, this gives rise to sankhara. Sankhara means divided or particular or that which is compounded. Sang means together, like the word sangha is a collection of, of people, a, a unified assembly. Uh, kara is from the, the, the verb to, to make or to do. So sankhara means literally sort of made together or put together, hence compounded. So separate things compounded together or conditioned compounded qualities. It means the arising of self and other, any kind of polarity or duality, so that out of this mind which recognizes suchness, we start to drift off to the sense of self and other. Sankara also means thingness, the world of things, That's hence sort of compounded and uh, uh, the um, uh, formed. Thus the illusion of solid independent entities starts to arise. What we then have before us is a process of crystallization or complexification, so that, fun that, so that fundamental sense of division into this and that becomes strengthened and conditions vijnana, which means discriminative consciousness. The mind is not only just dividing this from that and self from other, but it's starting to be able to conceive a whole variety of different elements, different things within the sphere of attention. The first four of the twelve links are avijja, sankara, vijnana, namarupa, ignorance, formations, consciousness, and mind and body. These four links refer to the establishment of the subject-object relationship. When there's ignorance, so and again, uh, just to, to remind people that ignorance in the, the Buddhist use of the term is literally not seeing clearly. Uh, so the word jnana in Pali. Uh, is related to the English word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, -S, or the Greek, it's also a Greek word, like gnosis, Gnostic, ig, uh, and so the, the mo of ignorance, I-G-N-O-R-A-N-C-E, that's not knowing, so that uh, we take ignorance in the ordinary English usage to mean not having some information, but it's so the, its literal meaning is like not jnana, not, uh, not aware, not uh, uh, the mind having a clouded sense of knowing or, or awareness or distorted, clouded or, or unclear, incomplete sense of knowing. When there is ignorance, when the mind does not see things clearly, then the mind drifts into the sense of a me here and a world out there, quote-unquote. Initially, in a rudimentary way, as formations, sankara, then strengthening into consciousness and mind and body, vijnana and namarupa, in relationship to each other, leaning on each other like two bundles of reeds, as it says in the Sangita, which I'll read in a minute, Sangita, uh, section 12, sutra number 67. Thus, at this stage, the division between subject and object, a knower and a known, seems quite real and natural. Vijnana leans on namarupa and vice versa. So the, um, vijnana leans on namarupa and namarupa leans on vijnana in a reciprocal relationship. It's an intensification, helpfully referred to as the vijnana-namarupa vortex by Venerable Nyanananda. The mind is drifting into a sense of separateness of the experiencer and the experienced. And Venerable Ruchiro, I think you were asking the question yesterday about that. So uh, I thought to read the... Um, Bundle of Reed or bits of the Bundle of Reed Sutta. Also, the um, uh, the Namarupa Vijnana Vortex is mentioned in Venerable Nyanananda's book Concept and Reality. This is a really very helpful book about conceptual proliferation, the Pancha. Uh, it's also mentioned in his book called The Magic of the Mind, um, and also in his he has a series of thirty three lectures about Nibbana. So it's also in a couple of places in there. Uh, he's not an easy read. So he's he's a Sri Lankan. His English is extremely um, accurate, but not particularly easy to read. It's very scholarly, sort of academic English. So you have to kind of be patient. Uh, but it's it's also extremely helpful because he uses all he brings in all the Pali, so you can look directly at the at the Pali originals. Um, as you're going through his uh, his translations and, uh, and his own commentaries, so uh, just briefly, I'll read a part of this 
Sutta. So this is Sutta number 67 in um, the Nidana Sangyutta, the, the um, collection of, of teachings, collected teachings about causation. Uh, Nidana is, is causation. Um, and this is a dialogue between Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Mahakutita. They were living in the deer park at Isipatana, uh, which is you know, where the, uh, the Buddha was um, first met with his uh, five companions shortly after the Enlightenment. So it seems like Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Mahakutita were back living there for some time. <coughs> so in this dialogue, Venerable Sariputta says, Name and form, Namarupa, friend Kotita, is not created by oneself, nor is it created by another, nor is it created both by oneself and by another, nor has it arisen fortuitously, being created neither by oneself nor by another, but rather, with consciousness as condition, name and form comes to be. How is it, friend Sariputta, is consciousness created by oneself, or is it created by another, or is it created by both oneself and another, or has it arisen, arisen fortuitously, being created neither by oneself nor by another? Consciousness, friend Kotita, is not created by oneself, nor is it created by another, nor is it created both by oneself and by another, nor has it arisen fortuitously, just by chance that means, being created uh, neither by oneself nor by another, but rather, with name and form as condition, consciousness comes to be. So, and uh, now we understand the Venerable Sariputta's statement that name and form, friend Kutita, is not created by oneself, but rather, with consciousness's condition, name and form comes to be. Now we also understand the Venerable Sariputta's other statement, consciousness, friend Kutita, is not created by oneself, but rather, with name and form, uh, as as condition, consciousness comes to be. But how, friend Sariputta, should the meaning of this statement be seen? Uh, well then, friend, I will make up a simile for you. For some intelligent people here understand the meaning of a statement by means of a simile. Just as two sheaves of reeds, like two bundles of reeds, like a long, a long stiff grass, as two sheaves of reeds might stand leaning against each other, so too, with name and form as condition, consciousness comes to be. With consciousness as condition, name and form comes to be. Then with name and form as condition, the six sense bases come to be, and, and so on, to the dependent origination. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. If, friend, one were to remove one of those sheaves of reeds, the other would fall. And if one, to re one to, were to remove the other sheaf, the first would fall. So too, with the cessation of name and form, comes this cessation of consciousness. With the cessation of consciousness, comes the cessation of name and form. And then with the cessation of name and form, comes the cessation of the six sense spaces, etc., etc. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. And so Venerable Kotita was very impressed and happy with that. So that's a, an image. Uh, also, it's, it's reflected in that, um, in the, the Mahanidana Sutta, in the Long Discourses, where it said, you know, that consciousness and, and nama rupa they they it turns back upon itself they they condition each other so it's a, the same basic principle of those two leaning on each other or affecting each other um, supporting each other is described so before I carry on any and I realize this is subtle and a difficult territory to get one's head around, but uh, yes, Lindsay. Yeah. Uh, is this original nature the same as Buddha nature? Uh, it depends who you talk to. <laughs> uh, I would say it's uh, it's it's closely related, like the Tathagata Garbha, the 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 origin or the source of the Tathagatas. So that. Uh, uh, I know that Ajahn Tanisro doesn't like the word Buddha nature. He is one of those things. He, one of those terms. He's sort of made a lot of uh, critical comments about. But um, I uh, personally, I feel that it's uh, it's uh, very close to that, or similar to that. Just as in that that um, in that short statement from that from that book, uh, Kenpo Sotram Gyamso gives a number of uh, names. So this is. This is called the non-conceptual wisdom mind, the non-dual wisdom mind, the clear light nature of mind, the dharmata and the tathagata garbha. 
So you've got uh, one, two, three, four, five, five different names just there in one paragraph. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that, that quality of uh, awakened awareness, I also like the, the, um, the term vija dhatu, the element of awareness that uh, I feel is, is a, um, a very accurate and helpful way of term to, to use for that same quality. Ajahn, would you say that uh, in Theravada? Well, if, if, was, Lindsay was about to follow up with something. Okay, I'm sorry. She looked like she was breathing in to say something. <laughs> Well, I was, the the Buddha nature is that awareness that knows these uh, different patterns taking shape, and that, and that when uh, I mean it's it's a, a term that's sort of been used a lot over over the centuries, but it's also the reason why we use the word Buddha to refer to the great teacher. Um, it's because that's how he talked about himself. There's this, this dialogue between him and the Brahmin Dona, where this uh, Brahmin sees the footprints in the dust, uh, uh, and he sees these, uh, these, uh, uh remarkable uh, patterns in the, the form there in the footprints. And wow, who do these footprints belong to? This is some, they, they, they look like large human footprints, but they've got these wheel shapes and these different, uh, different patterns there. And it describes him then following the footprints uh, off through the dust into the into the forest, and then finding the Buddha sitting under a, a tree. So then Dona comes up to the Buddha and uh, you know, respectfully uh, addresses him, and he's just uh, he's plainly amazed by the sort of radiance and peacefulness of uh, of uh, this being that he's encountered. And he says, "Excuse me, venerable, you know, but uh, are you are you a, a deva?" And he says, "No, I'm not a deva." Uh, are you a Brahma god? You know, I, no, I'm not a Brahma god. Are you a yaka? I said, no, I'm not a yaka. Uh, are you a human being? I said, no, I'm not a human being. I mean, that's a, a brief way of, of stating it. So that whereby you could know me as a human being that has been abandoned and cut off. And and then uh, then Dona asks, well, so uh, wh- uh, what are you? And then the the Buddha's response is Buddhosmi, uh, so that you can. Uh, I, I forget the exact wording of it, but it's essentially uh, you can know me as you can refer to me as one who is awakened, or that which is awake. Buddha, Buddha meaning awake, aware. And so that that's one of the reasons why we use the word Buddha to refer to to the great teacher, is that it, when he's asked the question, you know, are you a human being? He essentially says no, <laughs> even though he's born from a human mother and father. And as a human body, um, that the mind, that whereby uh, uh, the, there could be identification with the, with with uh, uh, be referred to as a, a human being that's been cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump, deprived of the conditions for existence, and rendered incapable of arising in the future. But still, there's a dialogue between these two people in the forest, and so that uh, so that Buddha. That Buddha Quality is what's speaking, and so that uh, that which knows the patterns of dependent origination, or that which knows the uh, the uh, the quality of of peacefulness and clarity and freedom, that that quality of knowing is the I would say is the Buddha mind or the the Buddha nature. The Ajahn, could I just say something about the Buddha nature because I I have been involved in Tibetan Buddhism for a long time and took Kachakra and. Dalai Lama. I know that the Buddha nature is thought to be something fundamental to everybody, and there is that idea that everybody can become a Buddha, basically. My understanding is it's not exactly the same in Theravada, so there is, there is a, a Bodhisattva and a, a who will become a Buddha, but not everybody has a Buddha nature, and then not everybody uh, will become a Buddha, so of course in Tibetan Buddhism you have Hundreds of Buddhas and people uh, worship different Buddhas, like the Sattva, Chakra, mm-hmm. 
so there were so, there were so many. So do you, do you think these are? Um, you can put these two, two, two parts. Parts are compa- compatible. Parts are not compatible. So in the in the Pali Canon, there's no suggestion that all beings will be enlightened. Like if you do the right thing, you'll be enlightened. If you don't do the right thing, you won't. Like so that that teaching that you get from the, the, the Lotus Sutra, all beings will become Buddhas. That's not found in the Pali Canon at all. Like what is what is found is that if a being uh, does the necessary and uh, and realizes the Dhamma, then they will be liberated. If they don't, then they won't. So it's not a kind of um, golden age messianic teaching of like, you know, we'll all, we'll all end up in Nirvana eventually. It's like, no, <laughs> samsara is endlessness <laughs> if you do the right thing. So it's more challenging, uh, but, um, uh, but I feel it's more realistic and more mature myself. But I would say that one of the, the uh, uh, this quality of awakened awareness, I would say that beings born in the human realm that we all have uh, access to that whether you uh, there will be a debate whether animals or other creatures uh, uh, have access to that same quality but i would say it's a it's a fundamental attribute of of nature and as a human being that we all have the ability to access that to some degree or another but some of us choose to access it and, and clarify that and some and some don't um, so I would say that potential for enlightenment is is there uh, in the human realm in particular, but uh, definitely not that all beings will be enlightened one day. But, uh, but uh, that's that's not, and, I, and that just doesn't makes that doesn't make sense to me anyway on a personal level. So anyway, Lindsay, is that? I think it's very interesting question. It's like the enlightenment. It's, I think it's a different interpretation between Northern School and Southern School, where it's like, uh, I wouldn't say everybody can be enlightened, but probably it was especially small close to what our nature exists in everybody, if you can reveal it through practice. And so, and also, I, th- I think it's, it's helpful to, to demythologize it, to, it, it really just means being awake. So that that capacity to to be awake and to be aware. Oh, this is a this is a sound. This is a feeling. This is my mind saying I like, I don't like. This is the mind saying I understand or I don't understand. That quality of of awareness that can know the present experience and know it as an experience. That's I would say that's Buddha nature. It's not remote or mysterious. It's it's being awake. The the uh, in Russian I believe the word for an alarm clock. Mm-hmm. There you go. So wake up somebody is So wake up. Evgenia, time to go to college. <laughs> so that um yeah, so it, it's not something that we need to think of as sort of remote or out of reach, but it's it's often sort of buried under all of our busyness and activity and our self uh self view, but we have that capacity, and that uh, so often when we use a sort of language um, like you know Buddha nature, it can seem wow, it's, it can seem sort of far away and sort of remote or something very very special. But it's I would say that that when the the Buddha said you know mindfulness is the path to the deathless, like when there is mindfulness, then there is the, the there is an accessing of that that quality. Jodhika, you had a question. In the simile of the reeds, if I'm understanding it, it's an explanation more than if the conditions for consciousness are there, then name and form also arise. It's not necessarily a teaching about how to break that link in dependent origination, or is it? Is there any pointing to that in there? Ah, there could be. Um, in, in that, um, if there, as as the, the venerable Sariputta says, there, if if one bundle is pulled away, then the other collapses. So, if there is insight developed into the nature of Nama Rupa, and say so this this uh, Nama Rupa 
um, these five khandas, they are, they are, they're, they're empty, they're, they don't belong to a self, they, they're not a self, they don't belong to a self, they are intrinsically empty. If there's enough mindfulness to see that, like say the, the teaching of the Buddha at the, beside the river at the Ayodhya, when he talked about the lump of foam, you know, rupa is like a lump of foam, um, perceptions are like a, a, so feeling is like a water bubble, uh, perceptions are like the, the, the trunk of a, of a banana tree, uh, the sankhara is like a mirage, and vijnana is like a conjuring trick. So if there's enough, uh, say, uh, my, you know, mindfulness and wisdom to, to, to recognize, oh, that the five khandas are intrinsically empty, they're, they're not, and they don't, they're, they're not a self, they don't belong to a self, then that, um, letting go of the, uh, the substance of the object, then the substance of the subject falls away as well. So, or it could be if there's a, in, in using the meditation to, to look, uh, to reflect on the feeling of, uh, the quality of anatta, and that, uh, it's sort of focusing on this, this isn't a, a person who's thinking or hearing, there's, there's hearing, there's thinking, there's feeling. There, it's not a self, it doesn't belong to a self. So then the subject side falls away and that would, that would sort of empty out or, or that would de- uh, disempower the solidity of the, of the object. But, uh, so with that, uh, I mean, there's different ways you can relate to it, but I feel that the sort of sankara, the kind of, forming seed and then strengthens into subject object uh, an experience and an experienced or like in that Kempo Sultram Gyamso the the, the realize uh, the uh, the realizing and the realized or the seeing and the seen that 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 uh, the, you know the seer and the see or that uh, that that is is made more and more solid the more the mind invests in that the the vortex strengthen strengthens I'll continue a little bit. This is subtle, subtle territory, so I appreciate it's not easy to, to, to follow, but uh, it's all good stuff, as they say, I would suggest. There are many ways that this process can be understood using the terminology of dependent origination. One useful framework is to take the vijnana bundle of reeds, quote unquote, to be embodying the formation of a subject whereas the Nama-rupa bundle of reeds embodies the formation of an object. If one is already somewhat familiar with Buddhist teachings, this might seem a bit confusing. And this, I, I did debate whether I was going to put this in the book or leave it out, because it, it's a bit fussy and, and can make things even more confusing, but I left it in eventually. So, if one is already somewhat familiar with Buddhist teachings, this might seem a bit confusing, since Vijnana is also part of the group of mental qualities that make up nama. So nama-rupa, rupa is material form, and the nama part is vedna sanya sankara vijnana. So, hence, uh, and people do ask about that. Now, how is this, how do you get vijnana and then nama-rupa? How does that work? <clears throat> so, how can vijnana be both part of the subject side as well as the object side of the process? To help make sense of this, I would suggest that the vijnana, that is the third link in the chain of dependent origination, refers more to the subjective faculty of cognizing, knowing, whereas the vijnana, which is the last of the factors of uh, comprising uh, nama-rupa, the fourth, uh, the fourth link in the chain of dependent origination, refers to the finest grained units of experience that make up any sensory event so part of the object world. Just as in a picture taken by a digital camera, at high magnification, it can be seen that the picture is composed of pixels, tiny individual colored units, so too the vijnana, that is one of the five khandas, which means the same as nama-rupa, uh, refers to the pixels, or building blocks of experience, that comprise every sense object. Thus we have a single word having two related but variant meanings. This is not uncommon in Pali, the word sankara being another example. So the reader and practitioner needs to be wary of making assumptions that they know what a specific word means. Mindfulness of the context and a lot of reflective consideration will always be helpful. Exclamation mark. 
That's the best I could do. I went over and over that a few times <laughs> to try and both talk about it, but also how to explain it without people going, huh? <laughs> That's it's even more confusing and muddy than, than when I started. But uh, if you are interested to get a sense of that, you can go over it a few times and make your own pencil marks, draw a few boxes and arrows between them and, and uh, uh, work it all out. Because also you've got Salayatana, the six senses, you've got Namarupa coming at that, you know, Vijnana Namarupa. So Namarupa is the fourth link. And then you've got Salayatana, the six senses and contact uh, at, the, at, um, at place, yeah, number five and number six on the list. And then you've got Vedana, which is also one of the five khandas, at, at uh, number seven. It's like, <laughs> So it can be confusing. And I, I, uh, I, but uh, one of the purposes of this this little book was to help people to uh, appreciate. Yeah, it can be confusing, but if you work with it and you sit on it, reflect on it, then slowly but surely things do take shape. Yes. I have a question on Vinyana. Um, that's the kanda that uh, is what? That's a kanda that's very confusing to me at the moment. Maybe because of the English translation, and when I think of consciousness and the connotation, it's quite hard to parse it apart from um, awareness. So consciousness, awareness, wakefulness. And from what what you what you just read, um, a clarifying question is: Vinyana, it's like a self-referential knowing. So it's not the kind of knowing that leads to liberation. It's a kind of knowing that creates the self. Maybe. Um, well, uh, in terms of the the five khandas. Um, that uh, to me that I've been so back and forth over this, uh, for, for many many years. So that description of it of it being it's more the discriminative um, uh, consciousness or, or what distinguishes one thing from another. That's the the basic function of vinyana and say the the building blocks of experience. So because you know even say this is rupakanda is material form, but the only way that that material form is known is through touch and, and sight and sound which are made up of you know, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, touch consciousness. They're the only way that they, those different aspects of the other, you know, the other five khandas can be known is through different patterns of consciousness. So um, that's why the, the vinyana, which is sort of number three on the list, uh, I tend to think well, that is the, 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 the knowing or cognizing element the vinyana that's part of the five khandas is more like the, even though it's the same word, it refers to the building blocks of experience, the pixels uh, that make up sound or seeing or color or, or, or sensation. The, literally the, the, the bursts in the different sections of the brain that say this is eye consciousness, ear consciousness, touch consciousness. Because you know, I, I don't actually experience this book I experience my mind's representation of the book. If my fingers were numb, they, that signal would not be there. I'd hear the sound, but if I was deaf, I wouldn't hear the sound either. So we don't experience the world, we experience our mind's representation of the world. So what makes up that representation is the, the building blocks of the, the, the vinyana that's part of the five khandas. And then the uh, the quality of of knowing or cognizing um, that anyway, so that uh, in that respect, I, I I see that vinyana in that usage is referring to the realm of the object. So all of the five khandas are in the the realm of the object, yeah. like seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling, um, thinking, remembering, and so on. And then there's the quality of, of knowing those objects. Is that a different kind of consciousness? The people have probably written PhDs and such like about this, but that's how it makes most sense to me over many years of exploring all this. Does that make sense? Make more sense. <laughs> <laughs>
you can say no. It's, 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 it's all right. To, it's all right to say no. So it. Uh, but I think I'll I'll, uh, I'll leave it there for people to sit on for a bit. Seven o'clock has come around already, so I think I will leave it with mindfulness of the context and a lot of reflective consideration will always be helpful. <laughs> Also, I this, it's saying um, what I put in this book and my own comments on it. This is not sort of definitive or the only what's sort of one and only way to understand it correctly. But over sort of forty years of exploring this all and looking at it, and I was having to teach it, <laughs> describe it, and uh, and uh, use it as a, a sort of a, a framework for understanding this uh, mysterious human existence. Then. Uh, that's the, the kind of languaging and format that makes most sense to me. Okay?